Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you've had a, a great week. I've had more coffee than usual, and I didn't wake up once last night, so I am rested. Um, so get ready. Grab your Bibles and turn them uh, to Hosea chapter 8. While you're turning there, um, Mitchell Parrish and I had a really cool talk a little over a week ago. If you, if you don't know Mitchell Parrish, find Mitchell Parrish and just, just talk with him for a few minutes. Your heart, will be, your heart will be so encouraged. But he and I were talking, we were praying, we were thinking on the Lord, we were thinking on a church, and just talking about how we continue to move towards Jesus, how we continue to move forward. And we both came to this conclusion. Churches grow because its members have their hearts stirred for Jesus often. Churches that are healthy, churches that move forward, they have their affection stirred for Jesus often. Our staff here, that's what we desire for you. We want your hearts to be stirred for Jesus often. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read a few verses in Hosea 8. We're going to chat a little bit about that. We're going to see what Israel has in God and why things are the way they are. Then, after we do that, we're going to jump over and see how Jesus loves us, how he stirs our affections, and how maybe if we stay focused on him, we won't make the same mistakes that Israel made in the past. The key is focusing on Christ this morning, how he loves us. So what is God's desire for us in Christ this morning? And I think it has to do with the word pursuit. So let's pray. God, as we open your word, as we see how much you love us, how you pursue us, I pray that you would convict us this morning. I pray that the idols in our lives will be brought to the surface, that we know that by doing that, you love us. I pray as we look on your son and how he pursues us, that it would remind us of how great and how reckless his love is. And God, I pray we'd listen to you when you tell us what to do as a result of your love that will follow you and will have your kingdom in mind as we move forward. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, Hosea 8, let's read the first three verses. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and they rebelled against my law. To me they cry, hey God, we're Israel. We know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Now, the first thing we see is that the trumpet is ready to go out. The warning is about to go out. He sounds the alarm. Now, what do alarms do? What do alarms do? They warn us. Yeah, it's a warning. So, before we move forward on this, i got a couple warning signs I want us to check out. Let's look at the first one. Hmm. Do not use for drying pets. I don't think that would be a good idea. Hmm. Let's check out the next one. Do not breathe under the water. Hopefully you don't need a sign for that, but they thought it would be smart just to post that at the pool or the beach or wherever. All right, let's look at the next one. This is actually in Birmingham. My best friend and I noticed this years ago when we would go to a place called Backyard Burgers. Entrance only, 
Do not enter. Seems pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Entrance only. Do not enter. All right, let's look at another one. Hmm. I, I, I just don't know. Why? Ugh. I'd be like, hey, Ava, check out the crock. You know, I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. All right, let's look at a couple more. I want, I want to see a couple more. This one's actually scary. Braxton Lions Club, drive carefully. We have two cemeteries and no hospital. I think I'm going to drive carefully through that town. The last one. It says, stop, prevent your death, go no further. And there's a few fun facts to let you know why it's so dangerous. Yet this guy and over 300 more people are like, I'm going to go in anyways. I mean, some of these warning signs, they're cute, they're funny, but some of them are really, really serious. So these warnings, these alarms, they get our attention. They say, get ready. Now in this text, He's like, hey, it's coming, and what does it look like? Well, it's like a vulture. Now, are vultures these pretty, majestic pets that you want? No. What are vultures? They're ugly. What do they they typically carry with them? Disease. They're dirty. They're disgusting. Now, here's what would happen. If something unclean like this in Hosea's time, entered the temple, everybody would just go crazy. They would freak out. We got to get out of here, or the priest would say, hey, I need to go atone for this ugly, disgusting sin because it came into our presence. Now, as we read this, there's a couple things that I want to point out. The enemy is about to attack. The enemy is coming to attack. Now, God is not pointing out people here. People are not our enemy. Did you hear me there? People are not our enemy. Nobody in this room or in this body of believers here is our enemy. Satan, all those who follow him, they are our enemy. Sin is the problem, not people. So why is the sin invading? There's why. The people forgot God. The people forgot God. And we do it too. We forget God. This is about a failure of a group of believers to remember who God is. Israel did it. We do it too. This is what Israel did. They forgot the past. All of it. They forgot God's deliverance, his mercy, his kindness, his reckless love, and his pursuit of their hearts. And it shows. They're like, hey, um, my God, hey, we're Israel, remember? We're the people that you chose. We know you. You always bail us out. You always restore. You always forgive. Let's just keep doing what we want. And we get to verse 3, and we not only see an action, but we see a result. It says, Israel spurned the good. They have cast God off. It's like when you go fishing, you go, cast him off. He's gone. Say this word with me. Say, zanak. Okay, I heard two of you. Come on, I want to hear all of you. Say, zanak. All right, Hebrew word. This is what it means. It means to reject. Israel rejected God. 
Not just the things that he provided, all the good things that you get out of God, but they rejected him personally. They rejected his presence. They forgot him. They forgot what this personal creator has done, how he, how he restored Adam and Eve, how his faithfulness and his promises were shown to Noah, his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob. They forgot the exodus, how they have been brought out of slavery into freedom. And he reminds them of that in Exodus 20. Before he gives the law, he says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. God did that. Now here's the result of them rejecting God. The enemy will pursue. When God is rejected, he's got a foothold. He gets us. He holds us. And he makes sin look oh so good. Doesn't he? Anybody that follows him and the influence by our enemy makes sin look so good, so attractive. And when he does this, if we're not remembering who God is, we are very quick to listen to him and what he offers. If we're honest, you and I, we don't always pursue God. Now, if we think we don't have that problem, then we got a much bigger problem. The Apostle John tells us three different things in his epistle of 1 John. He says, hey, if we say we have no sin, we actually deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. He says, if you say you know God, sound familiar? Look back at verse 2 in Hosea. If you say you know God, but you don't keep his commands, he calls us liars. I don't like being called a liar. I'm sure you don't either. But he says, if we're going to do that, we're liars and the truth isn't in us. In verses 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 2, he says, Hey, if you say you're in the light, yet you hate your brother or your sister, you're really still in darkness. Now, this is hard for you and I to hear this morning. But God is pursuing this morning. Here's the amazing thing about him. He loves us enough to sound an alarm on where we've gone crooked. He loves us enough to say, I love you. I love you. I love you. Remember history. He says, I love you. He says, wake up. That's what C.S. Lewis says. I love this so much. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God loves us so much, he wants to do everything possible to get our attention to stay focused on him. And he pursues us. Christ does this too. Uh, keep your place in Hosea. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, let me give you some context. John the Baptist has been preaching a kingdom of repentance. And Jesus comes on the scene and John says, hey, what I've been preaching, it points to that guy. Jesus is baptized, and then he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by our enemy. And he stands against our enemy. And what happens after that is he goes by the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and reports go about him everywhere. And he says, it says in verse 15 that he taught in their synagogues, and he's glorified by all. So everybody's putting weight 
presence, attention on Jesus. Verse 16, follow with me. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he unrolled it and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim. Give me that phrase. Good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of everyone were fixed on Jesus. So here's the pursuit. Here's Jesus showing love to sinners. Love to those who are captive by sin. Love to those who are bound by the enemy. And Christ says, hey, I'm the one that you've been looking for. Since the time of Hosea, since the time of Jonah, since the time where I just took a nap, kind of, for 400 years and I was silent. Since that time, here I am. And even though you rejected the good, even though you rejected intimacy with me, when your pride and your idolatry were ultimate, even in all that, he says, I'm here and I love you and I want to pursue your heart. It's the hope of restoration that Jesus gives us. Look at verse 22. And all, not some, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So, so track with me here. Affection for Jesus has been stirred. Everybody is fixed on him and nothing else. His words are gracious to everybody. They apply to everybody. And they're sitting here and they're going, isn't this Joseph's son a guy who makes things out of wood? And it's not that they don't believe that he's the son of God. He's like, wow, this seems crazy because this is Joseph's son, yet we know who he is. Now, things are about to change radically from 22 to 28. They move from being marveled to putting attention to, to saying this is the gracious one who loves us, they move from that to fury. Why? Well, let's read and find out. Verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet's acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut for three and a half years and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So one person, okay? Let's keep going. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only one, Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue, not some, all, were filled with wrath. They rose up, they drove him out, they brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him from a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is why they moved from grace to fury. It's their own pride. Jesus reminds them, hey, this kingdom, you know, when you say, hey, we're Israel, we know you, it's not just for them. He says these two that were ministered to during this whole time, they weren't Israelites. They weren't part of Israel. 
He wanted to get their attention to say, uh, your focus is so inward, you're forgetting about everybody else that needs me. So why do they respond with wrath? They forgot. And they forgot because the enemy came in and said, it's all about you, don't worry about these other people. They rejected God and the enemy influenced Yet Jesus gives them an opportunity to repent. Jesus gives them an opportunity to say, you know what, God, you're right, but Jesus is here to restore me, and I want to give him my attention. I want to give him my pursuit. But they ignore that, and they try to throw him off a cliff. Now, here's what's so crazy about this. The people who try to throw Jesus off a cliff He loves them for three and a half years. Think about it. He still shows them who he is. He still shows them his love. He still goes after their hearts. If somebody tries to throw me off a cliff, I'm not going to be so prone to do that. Are you? No. You could be honest. I'm not. Yet he does it. Luke chapter 4, 43, he says, I got to preach good news to other towns. If you go to 512, he shocks everybody by actually going to a leper, the most unclean person around, and he actually lets Jesus touch him. The vulture he cleanses. Keep going. He gets even more serious when they lower this paralytic down in a roof of people, and instead of just healing the guy, he's like, oh, sin's forgiven too. Now it gets really serious of why Jesus pursues us. He pursues our hearts. He sounds the alarm for us that he doesn't just come to give us good things and fun stuff. He comes to pursue our broken hearts. He does that in 2018 too. The reason, the purpose, the goal is to allow intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. And no one is excluded from it. No one here today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you might look like a vulture, smell like a vulture. Your sin may be as bad as what the vulture signifies, yet Jesus still pursues us. And it's so good. It's so good. All right, go back to Hosea. Let's read 4, 5, and 6. They make kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I didn't know it. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it's from Israel that a craftsman made it. It's not from God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So, Again, there's no regard to what God wants. Hey, we like this king over here, God. Um, I don't care if you don't want him. We're going to set him up because we like him. There's no concern for what their creator desires. They forgot him. They pursued something else. And God says, the kings you set up, the things that you give your attention to, that will be your destruction. Why? Because you're not focused on me. You forgot me. Now we get a response from God in verse five. Let's see what he says. He spurns the calf 
of Samaria. It's the same word that Israel used towards God, Zanak. Now I want to point one thing out really quick. Does God reject the people? No. God rejects their idol. So when we see this rejection from God, it's not towards them. And God doesn't reject us either. When we take something and make it ultimate, when we take something in our life and say, hey God, we're putting this above you, he doesn't reject us. He's angry at our sin. Even when it's as petty as, oh, I don't know, Bessie here. Hmm. How silly would I look if I had a shelf in my office and she was up on it and I talked to her every day? I looked to her to give me satisfaction. I wanted her to do all the good things for me in life. How silly would I look? You could be honest. Would I look ridiculous? Yeah, I think so. I think I would look really, really crazy. How do you think God feels when we do that? Because here's the truth. The idols we have in our lives, they're as silly as this cow. They can't do anything for us. Whatever your idol is, whatever my idol is, it's as crazy and as silly as this porcelain cow. It's not just Hosea's time either. After Jesus ascends from death, Paul goes to Athens, and you could find more false gods just like this than people. They even had one to an unknown god. So if he came, they would be like, oh, that one's you. Yeah, we were worshiping you too. You have no reason to punish us. It's all over the place, but we do it too. The early church struggled with it, and so do we. We create things and we give them priority. And I think the biggest one that we see in life today is just simple religion. One of my, one of my biggest frustrations is when I see the church in our country specifically. You go to conferences, you podcast other pastors, you listen to other teaching, you listen to sermons, and here's what you hear. You hear a lack of Christ, the cross, our salvation by grace through faith, and it's replaced with some hyper form of being good. And it sounds a lot like this. Hey, here's this bad thing over here. And here's the three ways that it's bad. And here's all the bad consequences. But here's all the good stuff that you can do in order to squelch the bad. And there's little or no mention of the cross of Christ. There's little or no mention of meritless salvation. There's little or no mention of being saved by grace through faith and not your works. When we forget Jesus, things will go bad. They will go bad very quickly. The enemy will pursue and he'll lead us to believe that there's all this life in simply changing our behavior. This is my hope. I hope that we wouldn't simply remember all of Israel's failures. Yeah, it's nice to, you know, see that, but this is my hope. 
I'm hoping that we would remember thousands and thousands of years of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his pursuit of our hearts, yet while we're still wicked. That's what I want us to remember because that focuses on Jesus and not our behavior. Now, I could talk for hours on this, but I'll just give you a few. God created us. God fashioned you and I in a womb. God gives us air to breathe every day. He gives us life every day, and he allows us to enjoy it. And he saves us by grace through faith in the cross, and he forgives our sins by our faith through it. But instead of resting in that, so many of us rest in the pursuit of whatever our idol is. And we begin to give those things our attention. And because of that, go to verse 5 in Hosea. God says his anger burned against them. Again, we're not the problem. The enemy is the problem. Sin is the problem. God is not, God's not angry at you and I. Go read Psalm 103. He's very, 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 very slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love towards those who fear him. God's angry at the rebellion He longs for our affection. He's actually jealous of our affection. He's not envious. This is what he means. He wants what's rightfully his. God wants our worship. It's rightfully his. God's not selfish. He's not prideful. God's not overbearing towards us. He doesn't hoard our freedom and demand that we earn it. He doesn't degrade us or shame us. But here's what happens. The enemy creates the lie that that's what he does. The enemy comes in our mind and creates the lie that that is the way that God is. And he's not. By any means, he's not. And over time, if we believe that, our hearts become hard and they become incapable of innocence. God says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? This is why they're incapable. Because they can't admit their own guilt. It happens in Luke 18 when Jesus gives this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Tax collector's boasting in all these great things he's done for God, just like you and I do. But this one guy, this terrible tax collector, he beats his chest. He's so ashamed of his sin. He cries out, have mercy on me, O God. I'm a wretched sinner. And Jesus says, justified. Pursuit of Christ. And he says, justified to that guy. While the Pharisee is not justified. Jesus comes, he pursues our dark hearts, incapable of innocence, and through the cross, he gives us the solution of being declared not guilty. Simply the cross, only the cross. He leads us out of isolation and back to intimacy. This is why Jesus comes. And here's what happens. Look at the end of verse six. This is probably my favorite part of the whole chapter. He says, the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. You want to know what this moves forward to? The cross. The cross of Christ shatters our idols. I told first service, I wanted to pick this up and slam it on this stage so bad. I wanted to hold this up and just shatter it. And then if, I'm glad I didn't because I find out later that some of the Ellisons would probably have scolded me for life if I would have broken it. But I just want you to get the picture, put it in your head of me holding this up and just slamming it down. 
Whatever your idol is in life, whatever you are drawn to by our enemy to give more attention to Jesus, Jesus comes to shatter that. And he shatters it by his death for you and for me. Let the cross shatter your idol today because it's the only thing that can. Verse seven. For they sow in the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no head. It won't yield flour. If it were to yield it, strangers would come and devour it. Israel swallowed up already among the nations. They are a useless vessel. For they've gone to Assyria like a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. And though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. All the kings and princes shall soon rife because of the tribute. Verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they become to him altars for sinning. Now, anybody in here a farmer or who have seen people farm or plant crops? Okay, quite a few of you. Now, if, if I go out with seed and it's a windy day and I go, oh God, bless my crop, and I just throw it all up in the air and let it go where it wants to go, how am I going to look if I do that? Stupid, silly, yeah, not, not smart. In wind they sow, in a storm they reap. This is crazy. Imagine seeing a farmer at this time when they don't have John Deere. John Deere doesn't exist yet. And they just throw it up in the air. You are the laughing stock of the community. Even, even the children would look at you and go, what a weirdo. And Jesus talks about this too. If you turn over to Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells the story of what happens if you do not plant the seed in good soil. It's trampled on. It falls on rocks. It's choked out by thorns. Jesus says, hey, this is what happens if you don't pursue me, if you can't focus on me. And he calls them useless. Why are they useless? They fail to lead others to the Lord. They fail to stir the affections for other people. It makes perfect sense. How are you going to lead others to worship God when you can't worship him yourself? How are you going to, if you don't have your affections stirred for Jesus often, you're not going to be able to show others what it's like to live in that joy. When our affections for the Lord are not ultimate, just like in Hosea, he says their altars for sin will be multiplied. This is why it was a big problem. You ready for this? Their leaders failed to point them to the Lord often. Go back and read chapter four, verse six. What does it say? It says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Their leaders failed to point them to the Lord every day. And now, Hey, this is where it falls on me. This is where it falls on the staff. If we have not pressed you to the person and the work of Jesus, please forgive us, because that's our job. Our job, every single moment of every single day that we are here to serve you, our ultimate goal in serving you is to point you to Jesus. So if we haven't done that, we're sorry. I'm sorry. But that's why we do what we do. Don't lose your focus on the Lord. Don't lose your focus on Christ. Because when we do this, grace is abused. 
These altars for sin that you see in verse 11, they're emblems for a false theology. In other words, they're emblems for grace that isn't real. Bonhoeffer talks about this. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace, not the kind of forgiveness of sin that frees us from the tools of sin, but it's grace that we bestow on ourselves. It's forgetting the grace of the cross. It's forgetting the grace of Jesus. It's forgetting how he loves us and pursues us and saying, I can find grace in something else. I can find it in another person. My spouse, my kids. I can find it in a hobby. I can find it in my job. I can find it in some other form of pleasure. You're cheapening the grace of the cross when we do that. When we do that, we cheapen grace. Jesus, however, gives us grace that is full of truth. One that pursues us when we don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Yet you give yourself away. That's Christ's reckless love towards you and me. Let's look at verse 12. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands? That's a lot of love right there. Ten thousands. They would still be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat, they eat it, but the Lord doesn't accept them. Now he will remember their sin and punish it. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker, built palaces. Judah's multiplied its cities so often send fire upon his cities and devour his strongholds. It's really, really hard to remember Jesus all the time on our own. We're not taught about him enough. We don't think on him enough. We don't ponder him enough. We don't long for Jesus like we should. Just like here, He's regarded as a strange thing. The only reason Jesus is strange to us is because we become unfamiliar with him. That's the only reason. When we're familiar with him, we know him instantly. We know his love. We know his character. We know how he pursues us. When we forget him, we're like, who are you, man? Why is your beard all nappy? Go get some product in your hair. Ooh. Why aren't you wearing an American flag? Where's your M16? Where's your tiny baby? Where's your white veneer teeth? He becomes unfamiliar and we create Jesus into something that he's not. And then we don't recognize him when he shows his love towards us. And then we're like, I don't like your love, Jesus. I'm going to come back to Bessie here. Why is the love of God so strange? We forget. And I can honestly say that we Don't remember Jesus enough. That's what Martin Luther said. It's foundational for ministry in my opinion. This is what he says. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they will forget. Every week they will forget. If you're not hearing Jesus the majority of the time, that is a problem. I want you to be captivated by the Son of God more than anything. That's why these teenagers over here can tell you, I talk about Jesus a lot every week when we teach. It's a lot. Because I don't want them to forget him. Ever. 
I don't want them to become slaves to sin again. I want them to rest in what Romans 6 says. I want the same for you. Listen to Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Heck no. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you're slaves to the one of whom you obey? Either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? This word gets really good. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And being set free from sin, you've become a slave of righteousness. There's so much freedom in Jesus. So much freedom. This is why it's vital for us to remember every day, to run back to the cross with our weakness, to be dependent upon Jesus in our weakness, to have our minds and hearts on him. He doesn't come simply to destroy the devil. He becomes to destroy. He comes to destroy his work. The work that eats at us every day. Christ comes to destroy that. So what happens when you focus on Christ more every day? You can withstand that more. You're listening to him more. It always fascinates me when people say they talk to the devil. Oh no, devil, I've got this going on. Why are you talking to the devil? you got the Spirit of God dwelling inside your heart. Why are you talking to the devil? Talk to God. Rest in God. Pursue God. Talk to him. He wants you to talk to him. Pursue him because he pursued us first. Turn to 1 John. We'll close. First John chapter 5. This is the message of First John. That we have our hearts led to fellowship of God. And that that, that alone, the cross alone, completes our joy. Nothing else. Jesus, the cross, meritless salvation by grace through faith, that completes our joy. And at the end, he says we're giving understanding of the Son of God that we may know what's true, that we may have eternal life. And he ends his letter with this very little profound phrase. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John knows history. He knows all of the history of Israel. And he knows everything up until the point in the first century when he's writing this. He knows you and I are prone to wander. He knows the enemy wants to rob us of our affections of God to steal what we have in God and to ultimately destroy us. He knows this. And this is why he pleads over and over and over again. Remember Christ. Remember the good news. Remember the cross. Can you and I do this? Can you and I get past the petty little idols in our lives, whatever they are, I mean, you know what your idol is. I don't have to sit here and list all of them off. You know in your life what ultimately gets your attention more than God. And God is loving you and I enough this morning to say, why can't you rest in me? Why can't you rest in the cross? Why can't you rest in my love, in my pursuit of your heart? So can we stop using Jesus' stuff 
Can we stop using all the stuff and simply rest in him? Can we know that what Christ offers you and I is what's best? Because it is. I promise you, it is best. It is best. Let's read this one more time and we'll pray. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, I pray that those times where we forget you, those times where we just run to so much junk to give us satisfaction, to give us love, to give us life. God, I pray that we as a church will just confess that right now. We're sorry. We're sorry we have forgotten you so many times. We're sorry that we have forgotten to lead others to you. We're sorry when we haven't rested in the cross. So God, please forgive us of that. And I pray that we will do whatever is necessary in our lives. We'll change whatever we need to change regarding what's around us so that we may be more focused on your son. Whether that's sticky notes all over our offices, whether that's reminders on our phones, whether that's a best friend willing to ask us the hard questions. Hey, did you read today? What did you read today? How did you have your affection stirred for Jesus? Whatever we need to do in our lives so that we can focus on the cross of Christ more, God, I pray we would do it. However that looks for every individual in this room, I pray that we would take the steps to focus on Jesus more every day. To rest in his pursuit of us so that we might pursue him more. God, I pray your spirit would move in power so that we might do that. And I pray that we trust that that and that alone is what we need for life, for joy, and for peace. God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. It's a very beautiful name we pray. Amen.